feel kind of like God. <laughs> and then this man with the devil on his hand came and took the hat. Free Britney. Free Britney. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Dab to Death. As always, I am your host, Nick Nobody Savage. So what makes this episode so special, you might ask? Well, this week we are traveling to the Great Lakes State to take a look at the top five murderers from Michigan. And we will be receiving a special message from Boot and Her Highness, who are the hosts of the Michigan Murders and Music podcast. Mr. Peanut Butter and Bojack Horseman in the same room. What is this, a crossover episode? Not quite, Mr. Peanut Butter, but close. Maybe someday soon we'll do a proper crossover, but until then, you can tune. You can always tune in to their podcast. I will provide links in the episode description and give you some more information at the end of the episode. But first, let's talk about what products we'll be featuring in this week's Dab to Death. As usual, I've got a couple of Paper Planes products. I've got some GMO Shatter, which I am really looking forward to. Uh, It's very rare that we get a good Shatter, like a really good Shatter, that just like knocks you off your feet. But like, this is one of those Shatters. Um, Like you just instantly get hit with this funky like gas smell like it's just oh and it tastes just as good as it smells so i'm excited for that one then i've also got some top secret paper planes live resin that's coming out but i can't give you the name just yet because as i said it's a secret but uh i will tell you that it looks amazing and uh lastly i actually have something that is not Paper planes. I know. I know. This week, the main product we will be featuring is a key lime tart live resin from Raw Gardens. Uh, You can find them online at www.rawgarden.farm or you can find them on Instagram at Raw Garden. You know, I I had mentioned a while back that I'm always looking for that that cannabis strain that has a really, you know, at least in a concentrate form, has a very uh, distinguishable scent and flavor profile that is very close to the scent or flavor profile it's supposed to be. Like in this example, key lime, you would expect it to smell and taste like key lime. Well... I mean, ideally, you know what I mean? And it actually really does smell like key lime. So I'm hoping that we get a good flavor profile on it too. But uh, I'm going to save that one for last, uh, towards the end of the episode. Just because it's uh, it's one of the first times I've you know featured a product other than Paper Planes. And I would like to... Uh, Reserve it for a point in the episode where we really need it, you know? (laughs) Alright, so I'm going to do a quick dab, and then we'll jump into this week's episode. 
I'm going to start off with the GMO shatter. Uh, like I said, it's just, it's very rare. You know, most of the time with shatter, you expect it to taste a little trimmy. You know, it, it's, it's shatter. It's not the best. It's not the worst. It gets you high for, you know, a minimal amount of money, or at least usually a small amount of money, you know, a lesser amount of money. But, you know, you don't usually expect it to taste the best. Um, you know, it, it's kind of at, at work. The running joke is the schnozberries taste like schnozberries. Like you expect it to be what it is, you know. And every once in a while we get some strains. Like, you know, we had the blue Terra shatter. That, that shit was just fucking fire. Um, but this GMO, I think, might dethrone the blue Terra as far as like the best shatter we've produced, at least in a while, at Paper Planes. <clears throat> so you'll probably see that hitting the shelves in California in probably the next two weeks. Um, so I would keep an eye out, and if you see it, grab a bunch of it. Like as much as you're legally allowed to buy. Buy it. You won't regret it. <sighs> yeah, that's a real, real good smell. A little funky and a little skunky. Yeah. It's like one of those 90s alt rock bands. Or rock bands. Yeah. Could you even imagine? Yeah. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just, I'm going to do my dab now. Unfortunately, still using the, uh, the small dab rig. Uh, I placed an order for a replacement on DH gate. About a month ago. Still waiting on it. So. <sighs> yeah, it's cheaper, but you you really got to wait. You just got to be patient and wait. And I suck at being patient. Anyway, dab time. Tastes just as good as it smells. Like, seriously. <coughs> Gotta say, that's probably some of the best shatter I've smoked in a long time. And I'm not just biased, because we made it, you know? <laughs> anyway. Oh! Also, in addition to uh, featuring the usual dabs and, uh, you know, concentrates, uh, I decided that this week I wanted to throw a little love towards one of my favorite disp uh, <laughs> dispensaries, one of my favorite brewing companies here in the Sacramento area, and I wanted to show a little love to Big Sexy Brewing Company. Uh, they're located on 88th Street, right off of Fruit Ridge in South Sacramento. Like I said, it's a great brewery. Uh, I know the guys that run it. I know everybody that works there. Uh, great group of group. Uh, great group of people. Wow, say that five times. Great group of guys. Say that five times fast. Um, 
lost my train of thought. But yeah, no, like uh, it's one of my favorite breweries. Uh, really good beers. They uh, they do to go beers now. They have like uh, four packs of their different varieties of beer, and they uh, I believe are going to start doing growlers and crowlers again soon. So, but don't quote me on that. Don't quote me, boy, cause I ain't said shit. You can find them online at www.bigsexybrewing.com or on Instagram at Big Sexy Brew Co. Alright, let's get into it. Oh, but the beer I am t- drinking... Sorry, I'm a little all over the place. But the beer I am featuring from Big Sexy is Cosmic Radio. It's an IPA, uh, and it's coming in at 7.2% ABV. That's alcohol by volume. Uh, it's a really nice, light-tasting beer. Um, it's got some like citrus, grapefruit notes, a um, little bit of tangerine... I just, I honestly really like it. Uh, I was more of a fan of their sours back when they did a lot of sour beers. They haven't been doing them as much lately, uh, especially, you know, I'm assuming with COVID, it just doesn't make sense to do something that's so small batch and specific. But um, yeah, check them out. Really good beer. Really good dudes. Really good time. You might see me there someday. You never know. So when I first decided to do a top five of murderers in Michigan, I had to decide what the criteria was going to be. Was I going to do the most well-known and notorious killers? Because if so, then that would mean that I would be talking about Eileen Warnos once again. And honestly, I wanted to keep things a little bit fresher than that. So then how should I determine who makes the cut? Every pun intended. The only thing that made sense was to look at the statistics and rank these killers by body count. Luckily for me, Murderpedia.org lists killers from around the world by country and here in the United States by state. Using the list of Michigan's worst of the worst, I looked at the number of both confirmed and suspected victims and narrowed it down to the five who I felt had the highest numbers and gnarliest stories. However, before we count down the top five terrors of the Wolverine state, please give a very warm dab-to-death welcome to the hosts of the Michigan Murders and Music Podcast. Hey, Nick. Nobody savage. It's your highness. And this is Boot. We would like to invite your listeners to check us out. Our podcast is called Michigan Murders and Music, where we discuss murders in our gorgeous state of Michigan and top it off with a little homegrown music, leaving you with a happy ending and on a good note. Boot loves those happy oh, endings. Yeah. We hope you will too. So tune in. Check us out and don't get dabbed, dabbed to, to death. Thank you, Your Highness. Thank you, Boot. I must say that I have definitely been enjoying listening to your show and I highly recommend that you all tune in as well. Once again, I will leave links in the episode description so you can head on over and show them some love. Now that we're all in the Michigan state of mind, cozy up, grab some dabs, and get ready to meet the top five Misha murderers. Misha murderers? Misha mur- Michigan Michigan murderers. Misha murderers.
Michigan murderers. I don't know what I was going for there. I was trying to be clever, and I don't think it worked. If you happen to be unable to get cozy or do some dabs at the moment, I feel terrible for you, and I promise to get high on behalf until you are able to do so. Don't worry. I've got you, my vooties. And now, without further ado, it's time for the Killer Countdown. Coming in at number five is Detroit-born Benjamin Tony Atkins. Uh, Yeah, I don't know why he was known as Tony, but he was known as Tony. Also known as the Woodward Corridor Killer, or the Highland Park Strangler. Ironically enough, this was actually the first episode of Michigan Murders and Music that I actually listened to. And boy, was this guy a piece of work. Not that our list is going to get any better from this point, but it's a pretty interesting starting point. Benjamin Thomas Atkins was born on August 26, 1968, and like most serial killers, had a pretty shitty childhood. The younger of two sons and the offspring of parents who were alcoholics and drug addicts, Benjamin was pretty much set up to fail. Of course, there is never an excuse for murdering people, so suck it up, buttercup. Shortly after he was born, his father performed the best magic trick that their family had ever seen when he disappeared off the face of the earth. Two years later in 1970, his mother followed suit and abandoned little Benjamin, forcing him to live in an orphanage. His time at the orphanage was not a pleasant one. Benjamin was frequently assaulted by several of the other children, and at the age of 10, he was raped by one of the staff members. The next five years was a continuous onslaught of sexual assaults at the hands of the other boys, which only ended when he escaped and found his mother. Tony lived with her and his older brother for quite a while, until he came to the realization that his mom was a sex worker. This career choice supposedly disgusted Tony. He was probably tired of watching her bang random strangers all the time. I mean, if you're watching your mom bang all these random people all the time and it took you that long to figure out that she was a sex worker, you're not the brightest. Anyway, Tony took off on his own in the late 1980s and soon after was living on the streets and addicted to drugs. While I'm sure he wasn't exactly picky, because I mean, come on, drugs are drugs, he was, uh, he was especially fond of the old crack cocaine. The drunker and higher he would get, the meaner and more misogynistic he would become. But other than that, his friends would describe him as a nice, well-liked guy. You know, aside from the whole murdering people thing. Speaking of the murders, Tony Atkins would target mostly younger or middle-aged women who were pretty down on their luck. Primarily other drug addicts and sex workers, much like his mother. Atkins would lure these women to abandoned buildings in the area usually with promises of drugs or money in exchange for sexual services, where he would then sexually assault and sodomize them. To complete this fucked up routine, 
He would then strangle his victims and leave their bodies where they lay, in the vacant homes and buildings which now served as their tombs. Some of the women that he killed would remain there for months before being discovered. The first of these dark deeds to come to light was the murder of a 30-year-old woman named Debbie Ann Friday. Debbie had been reported missing on December 8, 1991, and her body was discovered just days later on December 14th. Then, on December 30th, the body of 26-year-old Bertha Jean Mason, who was actually reported missing just three days after Debbie, was found in another vacant building. Over the next several months, the bodies of women kept showing up in abandoned buildings throughout the Highland Park and Woodward Corridor area, which, according to Her Majesty, is kind of the, uh, the crotch of the thumb, apparently. You'll get the, you have to go listen to their episode and you'll get it. <laughs> um, but all of the, uh, <clears throat> sorry, I shouldn't be laughing about this part. <clears throat> sorry, I was laughing about the crotch of the thumb, not, not this next part. Uh, all of the women had been sexually assaulted, sodomized, and strangled. So he definitely had a, a solid MO. Like that was his thing. He never really strayed from it. You know, some people are like a little more chaotic, like to spur of the moment, you know, tire iron, Mr. Ramirez. Or, uh, you know, later on in the episode, we'll talk about our number one murderer who just, oh boy, oh fuck, oh boy. Yeah, he he just used whatever the fuck he wanted and uh, we'll get there, we'll get there. Bear with me. Uh, There was even one point only a couple of months into his killing spree, that Atkins was even arrested in an abandoned building. But since there wasn't enough evidence at the time to connect him to any of the murders, he was released. And then, like, immediately after the hit, they released him, they find the bodies of three different women in three different hotel rooms in, this, like, in the Monterey Hotel in Highland Park. So, I mean, if they hadn't released him, those three women probably would have you know, still been alive. Benjamin Tony Adkins would finally be arrested on rape charges on August 21st, 1992, when he was identified by a 34-year-old woman named Darlene Saunders, whom he had assaulted in October of the previous year. When they questioned him once more about the string of murders that had taken place over the last nine months, Adkins firmly denied having any involvement and even went so far as to say that he was a homosexual and that he didn't have any interest in women. Which, I mean, like, was disproven by, like, anybody that knew him or, you know, any of the people he murdered, but they can't really talk, so... However, after 12 grueling hours of interrogation and after being confronted with a psychological profile that was pretty much spot-on, Atkins would give in and confess to the murders of 11 women. Those 11 women were Debbie Ann Friday, age 30, Bertha Jean Mason, 26, Patricia Cannon George, 36, Vicki Truelove, 31, Valerie Chalk, 34, Juanita Hardy, 23, and the Jane Doe, all of whom were found at the Monterey Park or the Monterey Hotel in Highland Park. 
as well as Brenda Mitchell, age 38, Vicki Beasley-Brown, age 43, Joanna O'Rourke, 40, and Osanina, sorry if I mispronounced that, Osanina Waymer, age 22. After a four-month trial, the walking mommy complex, known as Benjamin Tony Atkins, was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to several life sentences. Yet just three years into his incarceration, he died due to AIDS-related illnesses. And of course, for more information on this, or any of the other douchebags in this week's episode, be sure to check out Michigan Murders and Music. Next up at number four is Sad Sack John Eric Armstrong, also known as Opie or Baby Doll. I've already got so many questions about that one. Anyway, much like Benjamin Atkins, Armstrong primarily targeted sex workers. While he may have less confirmed kills than Atkins, it is believed that between 1992 and 1999, that John Armstrong killed up to 18 women in cities around the world. The fucking world, guys. Not not just like, oh, you know, like, somewhere around the town, you know, like, hey, somebody you know, killed somebody down the street, killed somebody in my backyard. No, no, this guy's like, I'm killing people in Beijing, motherfucker. I don't, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know where I went with that. <clears throat> anyway. I'm getting way ahead of myself, of course, because before we can talk about the fucked up things people like this do as adults, we have to look at all of the fucked up things that happen to them, or happen sometimes because of them, when they were kids. Not surprisingly, there were some pretty fucked up things that happened to young John. Fucked up. Sorry, I had to. John Eric Armstrong was born on November 23, 1973, in New Bern, North Carolina. At the age of two, while under his father's supervision, John fell out of a window and broke his leg. 1978-1979 were pretty bad years for John, starting with the death of his newly born brother Michael in 78 who died of SIDS at just two months old. The next year, his father left the family, but considering the fact that he was physically abusive towards both his wife and son, and that he had sexually abused John, it was probably for the best that he left. Later! After all of this, John attempted to commit suicide at just five years old by riding his bicycle across a busy street. He said that he wanted to die so he could be reunited with his little brother. Like, that's some pretty fucked up shit. Like, some pretty dark shit. Like, at five years old, you're already thinking of, like, killing yourself? See? Whew. Talk about a permanent solution to a temporary problem. I mean, the kid was five. Like, what the fuck? Five. I don't remember much about my childhood, but I know I wasn't trying to off myself at five. Jesus. Anyway, the next 10 years seemed pretty normal for John after his father left. He fished, played Nintendo, and was just an all-around average kid who often talked of becoming a police officer. Then, in 1988, at the age of 15, 
John spent a month in a mental hospital after he locked himself in a school bathroom when a 17-year-old girl tried to pressure him into having sex with her. Interesting reaction, kid. Not the way I would have gone with it, but hey, whatever. The next year, John finally sought the help of a psychologist to help him deal with the loss of his brother. I'm going to guess he either stopped going or he just had a terrible psychologist since we end up where we end up. Speaking of where we end up, John allegedly killed his first victim at the age of 17 in North Carolina, but he is not considered a but he is currently not considered a suspect for that murder by investigators. John's motive for killing sex workers supposedly stemmed from losing his high school sweetheart, Kelly, when another guy lavished her with gifts and stole her away from him. Somehow, in his feeble little mind, this caused him to associate the gift-giving with sex work. Not entirely sure how, but sure, buddy. Sure. After graduating high school in 1992... John briefly held a job at a grocery store before enlisting in the United States Navy. After completing basic training, John was stationed on the USS Nimitz, where he traveled the world. During this time, he claimed to have killed 11 sex workers, three in Seattle, two in Hawaii, two in Hong Kong, and one in North Carolina, Virginia, Thailand, and Singapore, respectively. That's a lot of places to kill people, John. A lot of fucking places. Also, um, he he hated the name John, and because uh, I, I think it was his father's name, and so like he fucking wanted people to call him Eric. But um, if Boot and Her Majesty taught me anything, it's that um, we refuse to call this sad sack piece of shit Eric. So he is John. FYI. Uh, So anyway, police in Hawaii have cross-referenced the time periods when John was stationed there, however, and they have never actually connected any unsolved murders to him. So there's a good chance that he's full of shit, or they just never found the bodies. Just gonna sip on this big sexy beer. I really do like that. Oh, toffee. Okay, so the tasting notes, it says citrus, grapefruit, tangerine, blueberry, peach, pine, and toffee. Fucking good. Really good. Telling you, man. Gotta check how big sexy brewing. In 1998, John married Kate. Oh, God, this one. Kate Rednoski. Rednoski? Red-nosed reindeer. He married Kate the Red-nosed reindeer. Like, Jesus fucking Christ, that name. Rednoski? Commies are coming. (laughs) Anyway. So, in 1998, he married Kate Rednoski, who he met aboard the Nimitz, and their first child was born in February of 1999. Some of these people move pretty damn fast. It's like, hey, we get married. Hey, and we had a baby. Hey, I'll have another baby. Next thing you know, they got 13 fucking kids. No, thank you. 
Hell to the no, to the no, no, no. Later that year, he was honorably discharged from the Navy and enrolled at Schoolcraft College in Livonia, Michigan. Things seemed completely normal until January 2nd, 2000. Police received a call from a man who claimed that he had pulled over because he was feeling slightly nauseous and that when he went to vomit down by the river, he found the body of a woman. The woman's name was Wendy Jordan, and the man who called in the body? His name was John Eric Armstrong. That's right. John called in him finding the body of a woman that he murdered. He was questioned because obviously that shit seemed fishy as fuck, but he was not arrested at the time. I mean, obviously they didn't know that he murdered her at this point, but like he murdered her and then tried to call in the body like he didn't kill her. Like he was just like, oh, I happened to be puking in the river and I saw this dead body, you know, I'm just being a good Samaritan and calling it in. And they're like, mm, nay, nay. Um, sorry, if you listen to or if you watch Bailey Sarian's videos, it's kind of like ingrained in me now is the nay nay thing it's it's you should check out bailey sarian on youtube you should if you haven't already uh eventually dna would tie him to the murder but in the time it took for the results to come in and for police to obtain a warrant john has been a busy man on april 2nd of that year john attempted to strangle well oh god damn it another hard name (sighs) John attempted to strangle Wilhelminia, 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 Jesus fucking Christ, people, just name your kids something normal. John attempted to strangle Wilhelminia, Wilhelminia, it's Wilhelminia, like, I, I'm not making this shit up. Anyway, Wilhelminia Drake, after she got into his Jeep but she was able to mace him and get away before John could recover. Just five days later, John offered a cross-dressing sex worker named Devin Marcus $40 for sex. You cheap bitch. Not Devin, John. Like, Devin was just trying to make a living. John was just being cheap. Like, $40 for sex? I'm sorry, but like $40 for a blowjob, maybe. For sex? You want sex, bitch. You give me like a hundred. Minimum. <clears throat> anyway. There's something new about me today. Hmm. Uh, so, anyway, John then attempted to strangle Devin, but once more, his victim was able to escape. John was not that good at this. Marcus then went straight to the police to report the attempted murder, IDing John Armstrong in the process. Then, on April 10th, police discovered the bodies of four women in a rail yard in southwest Detroit, the clear dumping grounds of a serial killer. At first, police only believed that three of the four bodies were victims of the same killer, but ultimately they tied the fourth to John as well. On April 12, 2000, John Armstrong was arrested for the murder of Wendy Jordan, based on DNA evidence, and in March of 2001, he was found guilty of first-degree murder. 
the following convictions were not far behind. And on June 18th, 2001, he was convicted of murdering Kelly Jean Hood, Robin Brown, Rosemarie Felt, and Monica Johnson. While we may never know the true number of his victims, we can at least feel better knowing that he is serving life in prison, where the sex workers carry shanks. Whew, all right, I think it is time for a dab break. Um, I'm going to sample the top secret live resin batter from Paper Planes. Wish I could tell you guys what it's called, but I can't. Wouldn't it be funny if this was just like some elaborate way of me just like saying that I don't know what strain it is? Oh my God, that smells good. I actually do know what it is. I just, I really can't tell you what it is. Yeah. I don't even know, honestly, if this is going to like hit retail shelves. This might just be for like a reserve list, you know? You know what I'm saying? But, uh, it's so good. So yeah, it's got really like a nice light. I mean, it, looking at the bottom of the jar, it almost looks like makeup, like a, like a foundation or something or like a really pale foundation. But when you look in the inside of the jar, it's a very, very soft, um, delicate butter or batter almost. Um, and it's just so light and airy. Oh, fuck. It just smells so good. So I'm going to, I'm just going to dab on it and uh, get back to this because I still got three more people to go. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, it's going to be a minute. <laughs> Really, really can't wait for my new dab rig to get here. Oh my god. it's so good it's like so smooth i know i'm coughing a lot but that's just you know my my, my lungs are a little fucked up but this flavor is really good like it's it, it almost kind of gives me like um like a slightly toasted s'more like marshmallowy taste <clears throat> it's really fucking good though alright well hopefully you guys will get to see that at some point and if it does ever hit shelves and I can release the name of it I will let you know as soon as possible but until then let's just get back into the show motherfuckers I think I need to open the other beer The labels are really cool design too. It's like this trippy cosmic colored light spectacle. 
I'm not describing it very well, but it looks cool. All right. So getting back into it. In the number three spot, I was going to place uh, Raymond Fernandez and his wife Martha Beck, better known as the Lonely Hearts Killers. But as far as I know, they only really committed one murder in Michigan, and they weren't from Michigan, so instead I decided that the spot went to Gary Addison Taylor, otherwise known as the Royal Oak Sniper. In 1975, Gary Taylor was convicted for the murders of four women, two of which were in Michigan and the other two were in Texas. But investigators in several states, including California and Washington, in addition to Michigan and Texas, believe that Taylor may be responsible for as many as 20 unsolved homicides. If this is true, then that would bring Gary Taylor's total body count to 24, which is six more than John Bitchboy Armstrong. Very little is known about Gary Addison Taylor's formative years. In fact, so little is known about him that there isn't even a known date of birth for him. Like, the guy doesn't even have his own Wikipedia page. Michigan-born, his family moved at some point in his youth to Florida, and this is where Gary began his decades-long spree of unprovoked violence upon women. In his teenage years, he would lurk around bus stops at night and wait for women who were on their own, at which point he would stalk and attack them with a hammer. At 18, he was charged for one of these assaults, but the jury acquitted him and he returned to Michigan, where just a few years later, at 21, he drove through several Detroit suburbs firing a gun at random women, eventually wounding two. These shooting sprees eventually earned him the name the Royal Oak Sniper from the local papers. Which, not exactly what I would call a sniper, but I mean, I guess it does sound better than... The Phantom Random Drive-By Shooter. Just doesn't roll off the tongue as easily, you know? I'm guessing that at some point he was arrested for these shootings as a psychiatrist testifying in court proceedings stated that Taylor was, quote, unreasonably hostile towards women, and this makes it very possible that he might very well kill a person, end quote. Gary Taylor was then declared insane and committed to Ionia State Hospital in Michigan, where he stayed for three years before being transferred to the Lafayette Clinic in Detroit. Despite his tendency for random acts of violence, someone decided that it was a good idea to give Taylor a day pass to attend a welding class. While out on this pass, Gary talked his way into the home of a woman who he then raped and robbed. You would think this would result in some harsher restrictions on him, but less than a year later, while out on yet another pass, Taylor threatened a woman and her daughter with an 18-inch butcher knife. Maybe I'll should stop giving him day passes. Just a thought. Rather than be charged with either of these attacks, he was simply transferred back to Ionia. For 11 years, Gary Taylor would be bounced from one psychiatric hospital to another before it was decided that he was a, quote, 
safe bet for outpatient treatment as long as he reported in to take his medication. End quote. Because, yeah, no, nobody's ever stopped taking their medications before. No, never. It's not going to end badly at all. You know what show you're listening to, right? It's going to end badly. Gary Taylor was released from the Michigan Center for Forensic Psychiatry in Ypsilanti. Y'all got some strange names out there. I'm just saying. I really like Tecumseh, though. Tecumseh is one of my favorites. The main reason behind his release was that under Michigan law, a person acquitted of a crime by reason of insanity cannot be kept indefinitely in a mental institution. Basically, what the law says is that they must be periodically certified mentally ill and whether they are still a danger to themselves or the community. Well... Fortunately for Gary Taylor, and unfortunately for everybody else, Dr. Ames Roby, who was the psychiatric center's director at the time, diagnosed Taylor's condition as a, quote, character disorder, rather than a treatable mental illness. Dr. Roby was also the one who believed that Taylor wasn't dangerous, so long as he took his meds and didn't drink. Yeah, sure. Not shockingly, Taylor decided against following the rules and stopped reporting in for outpatient services. What is shocking is that authorities waited 14 months before reporting him to the National Crime Information Center, the NCIC, in Washington, D.C. By this time, however, Gary Taylor had already murdered at least four women in three different states. Shortly after his release, Taylor married a secretary named Helen, and the two moved to Onstead, Michigan, where Taylor would bury two of his victims in their yard, 25-year-old Lee Fletcher and 23-year-old Deborah Henneman from... The couple then moved from Onstead to the suburbs of Seattle, Washington. It was here that Taylor would murder his third confirmed victim, a young housewife named Vonnie Suth, on November 27th. I'm not sure if this was 1973 or 1974, um, but he would also bury her body in the yard of their home. How was his wife not noticing this shit? Hey, honey, what are you doing? Just digging a hole, Helen. Don't ask questions. Oh, okay, honey. Uh, would you like some lemonade? Yes, Helen, I would like some lemonade. God damn it. Officers investigating the case were actually able to trace things back to Gary Taylor in... <sighs> Y'all keep doing this to me. In Enumclaw, Washington. Enumclaw? Enumclaw? Enum Claw. Enum Claw. Anyway, it's, it's, it's a place in Washington, apparently. Uh, they interrogated him, but due to his refusal to submit to a polygraph, and the fact that his name was not yet submitted to the NCIC database, the detectives were forced to release him. Yeah, basically, they didn't know he was a fugitive, because nobody had reported him as a fucking fugitive. 
geniuses. And, uh, you know, I, I the whole, like, refusal to take a polygraph thing, like, I... It, it, it just screams guilty. So then the fact that you're just like, well, he said he doesn't want to do it, so... I guess we gotta let him go. Well, that that's cool. That's cool. He's just gonna go keep killing people. It's fine. Whatever. There's so many fucking holes in this legal system. It's ridiculous. <clears throat> anyway, uh, not surprisingly, the marriage between Gary and Helen did not last long. She probably asked too many fucking questions every time he was digging a hole. He was like, "God damn it, Helen! Stop asking me about the fucking holes." She's like, but just, I just, I'm just worried, Gary, because, like, you're always in the yard digging holes, and, like, I'm worried about the property value, I'm worried about your sanity, I'm worried about the weird smell that's coming out of the backyard. Helen, what if I told you about asking questions? Anyway, sorry. Uh, After the separation, Taylor wound up in Houston, Texas. On May 20th, 1975, Gary Taylor was arrested in Houston for several sexual assaults, and he quickly confessed to four murders, the two in Michigan, the one in Washington, and now the murder of 21-year-old Susan Jackson in Houston. Uh, When word actually reached his his, uh, estranged wife or whatever... Basically, when word reached his ex-wife uh, that, you know, what he had done, she actually told the investigators that he had confessed killing at least four people in Michigan alone to her. So, like I'm saying, he probably killed a lot more people than we know about. So, convicted of the four murders that he confessed to, Gary Addison Taylor was sentenced to life in prison. While six of the murders that Taylor was once suspected of committing in Washington have since been attributed to Ted Bundy, who we will definitely do an episode on at some point, as he's staring me in the face. It's a little creepy. He has like, his eyes are just like dead. Like, you know, those shark eyes, like they're like sharks, they're just like dead and they're just like just blank. That's, that's what Ted Bundy's eyes kind of look like. I'm just like staring him face to face right now. Definitely. Yeah, definitely creepy. I just kind of got lost for a second. Whew. All right. That was weird. Not like I got lost in his eyes in like a romantic way. Cause like, I don't really think Bundy was that attractive, you know? Anyway, I am off topic and I cannot afford to be off topic because this is already going to be a long episode. He was suspected of six murders in Washington that are now attributed to Ted Bundy, but it is still believed that he may be responsible for at least 20 unsolved murders. Which, like I said, would bring his total count to 24. All right. While some of our top five so far have been based on their estimated or suspected number of victims, unfortunately, the death toll of our number two spot is a haunting number that is all too real. The asshole in our number two spot 
<laughs> is Andrew Philip Kehoe, and in 1927, he murdered his wife and then carried out a vicious series of bombings in what remains the deadliest school massacre to this day, the Bath School Disaster. <clears throat> the Bath School Disaster. This unfortunate event took the lives of 38 children and 7 adults, including Kehoe, as well as wounding 58 more people. So who exactly was Andrew Kehoe, and what drove this simple farmer, who had actually served as a member on the school board, to commit such an atrocity? Andrew Philip Kehoe was born on February 1st, 1872, in Tecumseh, Michigan. Hey, my favorite, Tecumseh. If I'm mispronouncing that, I'm sorry. Is it Tecumseh? 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 Tecumseh. Tecumseh. I don't know. I'm sorry. It's my favorite, though. Just, Just know that. I don't mean to mispronounce it. Or any of the other Michigan, Michiganian, Michigonian, Michigonian things? I don't know. Anyway, in Tecumseh, Michigan, to Philip and Mary Kehoe. He was among the younger of the couple's 13 children. 13 kids? I'm sorry, but why in the hell would anyone want to have 13 children? I mean, I guess back then it was kind of like more of a numbers game where it's like, you know, well, you expect to lose at least two to diseases. One will probably get kicked in the head by a horse. Factor in the baby I dropped and then you got to carry the not so bright ones over and divide by two. Well, shit, we'll be lucky to get a solid five out of there alive and well. Sorry. Back on track. Andrew was a fairly smart child and seemed to have a knack for working with electrical systems. See? Accidents were waiting to happen to these children. Anyway, he was always tinkering on inventions, several of which were actually put to use on the family farm. Again, accidents were waiting to happen to these people. It's like a million ways to die in the West when he's like, people die at the fair. People die at the fair. What the fuck? After graduating from Tecumseh High School, Kehoe attended Michigan State College, now known as Michigan State University, where he studied electrical engineering. While in college, Andrew met his future wife, Ellen Nellie Price, who was from a wealthy family in Lansing. After college, Kehoe lived for a while in St. Louis, Missouri, where he worked as an electrician. In 1911, Kehoe would suffer a rather severe head injury when he fell while on a job. He was in a coma for two weeks, but eventually recovered and returned to Michigan to live with his father. Andrew's mother, Mary, had passed away in 1890 and his father, Philip, had remarried to a woman named Frances Wilder. And for whatever reason, Andrew Kehoe did not like her one bit. 
in what was possibly the first omen of what was to come, but was definitely suspicious circumstances to say the least. Francis suffered from severe burns on September 17, 1911, when the stove she was attempting to light exploded. Her body was soaked in fuel and ignited almost instantly. Kehoe reacted, but all he did was throw a nearby bucket of water onto her. And if you know anything about an oil fire, you know that water does jack shit to stop it. Like, absolutely nothing. If anything, it's just going to spread it around and make it worse. So, Frances would later succumb to her injuries, and though it was never proven, it was suspected by several people that the stove had been tampered with. Andrew would definitely have had the knowledge necessary to do something like this, but was his dislike of his new stepmother enough to drive him to murder? Oh yeah! The next year, Andrew Kehoe would marry Nellie Price. You remember Nellie, right? And in 1919, the two bought a farm on an 18-acre plot of land outside of Bath, Michigan. They purchased the land from Nellie's aunt for $12,000, which would be equivalent to about $337,000 in 2021. Kehoe paid half in cash and took out a mortgage for the remaining $6,000. While he was regarded as a rather intelligent person by the community and was known for his meticulously neat appearance, which was definitely strange for a farmer in the 1920s, he was also known to be a pretty big dick. And not like in a good way, like he was just kind of an asshole. Kehoe is impatient and short-tempered, even going so far as beating a horse to death simply because it did not, quote, performed his expectations, end quote. He was also the kind of person who held a grudge over even the smallest slight and would often plot out elaborate revenges on those who he felt had wronged him. Not that he would ever act out on anything like that. No. Despite his many... personality flaws, Kehoe also had a reputation for being very thrifty, so he was appointed the treasurer of the Bath Consolidated School Board in 1924. Kehoe was constantly fighting to lower taxes, which, I mean, it's cool, I guess, but, like, y'all gotta get your money from somewhere, so... You know. Uh, but anyway, and he apparently was always at odds with other members of the board. His behavior on the board was petty and childish, he would often vote against other members of the board for personal reasons and would call for adjournment any time it looked like things weren't going to go his way. His grudges even extended to the superintendent of the school board, Emery Hyuk. Hyuk. Hyuk, 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 Hyuk. I don't know. It's H-U-Y-C-K. You fucking pronounce it. Uh, who he had repeatedly accused of financial corruption. 
son just however you pronounce his name he didn't like the guy okay after briefly serving as the bath township clerk in 1925 andrew kehoe was defeated when he ran for the position in the 1926 election this public defeat both angered and embarrassed him and many believe that this is when he began planning his ultimate act of revenge In the year leading up to the terrible events that would later unfold, neighbors noticed that Kehoe had all but given up on working on his farm. A few of his neighbors thought that he might even be planning to commit suicide. Nobody thought to maybe, like, check on the guy then? Like, you know, just like a quick little... Hey, buddy, just wanted to see how you were, like, maybe doing in here. You know, maybe make sure that you weren't, like, uh, planning to, like, you know, maybe, you know, go insane and kill everybody or anything. Who, who, me? Oh, no, I'm totally sane. Just me. And ignore the piles of explosives. Those are completely unrelated. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let myself out, and, um, please don't kill me. Sorry. Anyway. In addition to no longer working on the farm, Kehoe was no longer making mortgage payments, and the lender had begun foreclosure proceedings. Kehoe blamed the increasing taxes for his inability to pay the mortgage, but let's be honest here. If he had continued to actually farm the land he was living on instead of plotting a catastrophic murder spree, he might have been able to generate enough income to pay the bills. And since we are on the topic of Andrew Kehoe's plans for retribution, we might as well get to the date of this deadly and devastating attack. Kehoe had been laying the groundwork for this destruction for months, placing explosives and reserves of fuel in strategic locations beneath the the school. Using his reputation as an electrician and all-around handyman to gain access to the school grounds. Sometime in the day or two leading up to the attack, Kehoe murdered his wife Nellie, who had been chronically ill with tuberculosis for years, and he unceremoniously dumped her body in a wheelbarrow and left it in a barn on their property. On May 18, 1927, Andrew Kehoe carried out his long-planned revenge against a bunch of children. Cool story, bro. You feel like a fucking man now? Like, and... Gonna go on a little rant here, but like it's the same thing with like these fucking school shootings. Like we're having so many of them lately. And it's like it's just not just school shootings, but like mass shootings in general, or like, you know, these public events and people just get shot, and it's just all this stupid shit going on with these fucking idiots and their guns. And and, and you know, I'm not gonna go off on gun control because that does jack shit. That does absolutely nothing. Like, you can make guns illegal. People are still going to have fucking guns. They do now. Like, you know, you tell felons they're not allowed to own a gun. How many fucking convicted felons own guns? Like, come on. 
it's it that's a joke what i'm really fucking irritated with is like mental health like the 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 mental health system in this country is a fucking joke like the people that actually need mental help very rarely get it and and like by the time that they do get it it's either too far they're too far gone or it's too fucking late or you know it's just like they're already in prison for something that they've done because of their their <sighs> Anyway, I'm not saying that Andrew Kehoe is mentally ill. I'm saying he was an asshole. I know he was just an asshole. Like, that's that's that. That's a fact. But a lot of these these school shooters and shit like that, it's like, it's these people are mentally ill and, and need help. And we, as a, as a country, as a system, as a mental health care friendly society we have failed anyway so back to this story the attack was a nearly simultaneous series of explosions and fires at both his home and farmhouses as well as at the bath consolidated school the explosions took place at approximately 8:45 in the morning just 15 minutes after classes had begun. The explosives planted in the north side of the school detonated as planned, killing several children and a couple of the staff. Had the stockpile Kehoe planted on the south side of the school detonated as well, who knows what the damage could have truly been. Despite the failed detonation of the south side explosives, the initial blast still claimed the lives of 38 people most of whom were children. The scene was described as a war zone, debris and bodies scattered everywhere, flames engulfing the buildings. Parents stood alongside emergency crews working to clear the debris in hopes of rescuing their children. Then, as if things weren't already bad enough, Andrew Kehoe pulled up in his truck around 30 minutes after the explosion. The first person to encounter Kehoe was Superintendent Hyuk, who Andrew waved over to his truck. Nobody yet knew that Andrew was the one behind this devastating attack, so Emery Hyuk ran over to see what he wanted. Unfortunately for him, it would be the last thing he would do. A witness would later testify that he had seen Kehoe and Hyuk struggling over some type of gun before Kehoe detonated the dynamite that he had packed into his shrapnel-filled truck. This final explosion immediately killed both Andrew Kehoe and Emery Hyuk, as well as a retired farmer named Nelson McFerrin and an eight-year-old boy named Cleo Clayton who had survived the initial blast only to wander out at the wrong time to be killed by shrapnel. The truck explosion also injured several other people, including Postmaster Glenn Smith, who had an entire leg blown off by the flying scraps of metal and debris. Unfortunately, Glenn would also succumb to his injuries and died on his way to the hospital. The aftermath of Andrew Kehoe's attack on the Bath School took days to clear, 
but the true damage would last far longer than anyone could tell. The Bath School disaster, as it has come to be known, remains to this day the deadliest act of mass murder in a school in United States history. Well, that shit was a little heavy, so I think it's a time to get a little heady and try out one of our first concentrates that we featured that isn't paper planes. Alright, it is finally time to dab. <sighs> the Raw Gardens Key Lime Pie Tart. Uh, key lime, key lime tie, key lime tire, 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 the tartar sauce. Har, the tartar sauce, my boy. Anyway, uh, no, so it's, it's the Raw Gardens Key Lime Tart Live Resin. Smells magical. Like, instantly just makes me think of a big old fat key lime pie from like Marie Callender's or some shit. Oh my god, I want to go to Marie Callender's now. Uh, it's really hard to lose weight when you love junk food. Anyway, and you're a stoner. It's just, it's not conducive. It's really not. You're like, oh, I want to get healthy and lose weight and be fit. And you're like, but I'm going to smoke shit ton of weed and eat like five pounds of gummy bears. You can see where my problem comes, right? Like, it's an issue. I'm like, oh, I want to get healthy. I want to get fit. I'm like, oh, I want to get healthy. I want to get fit. And then I'm just like, no, I want to fit this box of good and plenties into my mouth. Oh, Sorry if you don't like black licorice, but I love it. I think it's good. It's good. Like, it, it's it's the fact that a lot of people don't like it makes me like it even more. Because then I just know that there's always going to be good and plenties at stores because nobody else likes them. Comment down below if you like good and plenties. Maybe I'll send you a sticker. Not a good and plenty sticker, but a dab to death sticker. I don't know where I would send it if you just commented though. So, so anyway, <clears throat> time to dab. So the consistency almost, oh, okay. Yeah. I definitely see some diamonds in there. It's like a diamond sauce, maybe like a diamond sugar. It definitely smells like limes, like straight up. Oh my God. I really kind of wish that I didn't have the tolerance that I have because it's like, oh, here's a gram of some fire product. Let me take like a quarter of it or a third of it for a dab. And then in like two, three dabs, it's all gone. And then I'm just like, well, that's cool. Wish I still had that, but I don't. Okay, it doesn't smell the greatest when it's burning on the nail, but uh, we'll give it a chance. Oh. Okay. Mm. 
Oh my God. Hmm. <clears throat> hmm. Okay, Raw Garden, you got me. You got me hooked. I like it. Honestly, that is really good. Like, I I don't want to stop smoking it. And I just want to, like, do the rest of the gram to my face. See, like I said, I really wish I didn't have the tolerance I have sometimes. Because then I'm just like, yeah, let me do a whole gram. And then I'm like, cool, I just, I just smoked a whole gram. And I'm going to want to smoke another one in like 30 minutes. Why? I'm having like an existential like crisis over my tolerance level. So that's kind of funny. <laughs> Stupid, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. I'm especially sorry for all of my listeners who uh, live in places where smoking weed is not so uh, easily accessible, you know? So if you're, if you're listening from a place where cannabis is frowned upon, to say the least, my condolences to you. I, I send my support. Uh, eventually, eventually I'd like to think that Weed will be, like, universally and globally, like, legal and accepted, and, like, it has to be. It it just, it helps so many people. Like, how could it not? But then again, as long as the pharmaceutical industries can profit off of people not being able to smoke weed, weed's going to be illegal. Alright, I would definitely have to say that the Key Lime uh, Raw Gardens Live Resin comes in pretty high on my list. Or comes in pretty high on the rankings of the Nectar Scale. Yeah, yeah, I didn't forget about that. I'm bringing it back. The Nectar Scale. No, I'm just kidding. I, I am not that full of myself. <sighs> A little out of breath, though. (coughs) (coughs) Alrighty. Let's get to the number one spot. While some people may kill because of traumatic childhoods, both physically and mentally, and others might kill because of personal vendettas, even if it's For the pettiest of reasons, Mr. Kehoe, there are those individuals out there that kill solely for the sake of ending another person's life. 
our number one spot in the murder in Michigan countdown is one of those people. One of those callous souls who feeds off the misery of those unfortunate enough to cross paths with them. At the top of our list this week is Carl Eugene Watts, also known as the Sunday Morning Slasher, or by his uh, lesser-known nickname, Coral? Again, I have so many questions. Like, Coral? Anyway. Mr. Watts is currently suspected to have killed more than 100 women. If this number is correct, it not only makes him the top killer on our list, but makes him the most prolific serial killer in United States history. Despite the fact that he might be the most serial killer that this country has ever seen, Carl Watts doesn't really get the recognition or the fame of other serial murderers. In fact, when you think about serial killers, who are the first names that come to mind? You know, Dahmer, Gacy, Bundy, Berkowitz, Raider, hell, even Holmes. But where are all the stories of the Sunday morning slasher? How many of us even know the name Carl Eugene Watts? And why? I'm just saying it just seems like that the uh, the more famous serial killers all have a certain skin complexion. Other than like Richard Ramirez, you know, he was Hispanic, but significant majority of the famous guys, the heavy hitters that we all know, white guys. Just saying. I'm just saying. So we've got Carl Eugene Watts here who might have murdered more people than anybody in the entire history of our country. And nobody even knows his fucking name. So, there's that. Whatever the reason for his lack of notoriety, Carl Watts is not a person to be taken lightly by any means. While he is suspected of over 100 murders we do know that he is definitively responsible for the deaths of at least 14 women, and that is already 14 too many. Carl Watts was born on November 7, 1953, in Killeen, Texas. So while he isn't a Michigan native, he still perpetrated a good number of his crimes in the Great Lakes State. In fact, he was suspected in the murders of at least 10 women and young girls while living in Michigan. Watts's father, Richard Eugene Watts, was a private first class in the United States Army, and his mother, Dorothy May Young, was a kindergarten art teacher. They separated when young Carl was less than two years old, and he grew up with his mother. Eventually, Dorothy would move them to Inkster, Michigan, Inkster, to Inkster, Michigan, where she would marry a mechanic named Norman Caesar in 1962. 
I just suddenly had a brilliant idea. So you know how there's like LA Inc. and Miami Inc. They should start a, a tattoo show called Inkster Inc. You know, in Inkster, Michigan, it's Inkster Inc. It sells itself. Come on, people. You can pay me for my ideas later. It's fine. Anyway, Watts was described as a strange child, even from a fairly young age. There was just something a little off about him, even according to himself. Carl Watts would state that it was at around the age of 12 when he first began to fantasize about carrying out the torture and murders of girls and young women. Soon after that, he began stalking girls from school and from around town. Many believe that he actually claimed the life of his first victim before he was 15 years old. Damn! Right? When he was 13, Watts was infected with meningitis, which is a bacterial infection in the membranes surrounding the brain and spinal cord. And as a result, he was held back in the 8th grade. Upon returning to school, he struggled academically and was only at a 3rd grade reading level by the age of 16, which led to constant bullying from the other students. Watts also first got into trouble with the law at 16 years old, when on June 29, 1969, he was arrested for assaulting a 26-year-old woman named Joan Gave. After being tried, Carl Watts was sentenced to a mental hospital in Detroit called the Lafayette Clinic. Sound familiar? Yes, the very same clinic that Gary Addison Taylor had been sentenced to years before. According to psychiatric evaluations performed during his time there, Watts not only was revealed to have an IQ of 68, placing him at what was then referred to as a level of mild mental retardation. And actually, the term intellectual disability is now starting to slowly phase out the term mental retardation, which is great because, like, it just sounds bad, you know? So, not only was he revealed to have an IQ of 68, but he was also referred to as, quote, a paranoid young man who is struggling for control of strong homicidal impulses. End quote. In his final review, Dr. Gary Ainsworth, who evaluated Carl, went on to say that, quote, his behavior controls are faulty and there is a high potential for violent acting out. This individual is considered dangerous. End quote. Keep in mind that this was what was said about Watts in his final evaluation before he was released from the Lafayette Clinic on November 9th, just a little over four months after his assault on Joan Gave. So, I mean, like, I, I feel like this was a huge, again, a huge failure on the behalf of many, many professional professionals who should have fucking known better 
Like you legitimately said that this person was dangerous and that was violent and was possibly going to hurt or murder someone. And you were just like, let's let him back out into the world. See what happens. (laughs) I'm going to write a paper on this and get published and make millions. Like, fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. The fact that you you call yourself a medical professional. The nerve, good sir. Sorry, I, I don't even I don't even know this guy personally. I'm just saying. <sighs> anyway. Now, surprisingly, Watts returned to school after all of this, and despite poor grades, he eventually managed to graduate high school in 1973. So he was about 19 years old at this point. I'm not talking shit. No shame in the game. I graduated a little late myself. I was a super duper senior, but we're not going to talk about that. Rule number one of Fight Club. Carl even actually received a football scholarship to Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee. What may not come as such a surprise, however, is that his stay at Lane College was a very brief one. Hell, it was even shorter than his stay at the Lafayette Clinic. Three months into his first semester, Watts was expelled after being accused of stalking and assaulting women and was widely suspected of brutally murdering a female student at the school. Gee, if only uh, some psychiatric professional had, like, assessed him and deemed that, like, he was a danger to society or something. Oh, wait, they did! And then they released him into society. Is anybody else confused here, or is is it just me? No, just me? Uh, okay, okay. I guess I guess I'll just go fuck myself. <sighs> Unfortunately, there wasn't enough evidence to connect Watts to the murder, and after he was expelled, Carl Watts decided it was best to get the fuck out of Jackson, and he moved to Houston, Texas. Watts's known career as a serial killer began in 1974 when he was just 20 years old. On October 30th, Carl Eugene Watts tortured and brutally murdered a 20-year-old woman named Gloria Steele. If he was indeed responsible for the death of the student in Tennessee as well, then Gloria would be his second victim, as far as we know. Watts would primarily target white women between the ages of 14 and 44, and would usually kidnap them from their homes, torture them, and finally kill them using a wide range of methods. Some of his preferred methods include bludgeoning, drowning, stabbing, and strangulation, all of which are very up-close and personal methods of murder. So he was uh he was a hands-on kind of guy. Yikes. Watts would go on to commit an almost uninterrupted 8-year spree of murder and mayhem, killing
killing who knows how many women, really, between the years of 1974 and 1982. It was then that Carl Watts was finally arrested, and the true extent of his horrors would begin to unfold. So how was it exactly that Watts was able to go on killing for so long without being discovered? Well, the first and simplest reason for this is that Watts would attack not just in several different jurisdictions, but in different states as well. And it did seem that he primarily moved between Michigan and Texas. As we all know by now, police in different jurisdictions rarely, if ever, worked with or shared information with investigators in other precincts. This massive flaw in the legal system basically allowed the legacies of these serial killers to be established, if you think about it. Because, like, especially back in, I mean, I'm sure now, like, nowadays, communication is a bigger thing. There's, you know, like, the, you know, the internet and networks and all of this shit that has, like, come together to make crime-solving a much more efficient process. But back in, like, the 1970s, the 1980s, and the 1990s, I mean, even, like, coming into the 1990s, because, like, the 1990s were fucking brutal when you think about true crime and murder. Um, but those, those, those three decades in particular, because of the lack of communication between police precincts and between states and between different cities and counties, even like you had literally like cops two cities over from each other that knew absolutely nothing about each other's cases. You could have a serial killer operating in your, in your city and your state, and you would have no fucking idea. So it's like you basically were allowing these serial killers to establish their legacies because y'all just didn't want to fucking talk to each other. Anyway, another reason it was so difficult for investigators to link Watts to potential murders was that unlike most serial killers that targeted young girls and women, Watts's crimes were not sexually motivated and he very rarely performed sexual acts with or on his victims. This meant that even as the use of DNA testing and analytics was developing, there was very little DNA for them to even test, making it all the more difficult to confirm Watts' involvement in various murders. Then, on May 23, 1982, Carl Watts was arrested for breaking into the home of two young Houston women and attempting to murder them. And then the floodgates began to open. Houston police began linking Watts to several recent unsolved homicides of young women in the area. In addition to this, investigators in Michigan, where Watts had been living up until the year before his arrest, suspected that he was responsible for the murders of at least 10 women there as well. Watts had even been questioned before in 1975, but once again a lack of evidence let him beat a murder charge and he slipped through the cracks once more. He did serve a year at this time for attacking another woman uh, who was fortunate enough to survive, 
But other than this, he really did not, like, get caught for shit. Anyway, back to Texas in 1982 now. Prosecutors did not feel that they had enough evidence to get a conviction on the murder charges, so they decided to strike a deal with the devil. Tell me something, my friend. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? The deal they offered Carl Watts was a simple one, and a far better one than he ever deserved. In exchange for his full confession of all of the murders and other crimes that he had committed, he would be granted immunity for the murders and would only be charged with burglary with intent to murder, a crime which would carry a penalty of 60 years in prison. Needless to say, Carl jumped at this opportunity and agreed to the 60-year sentence before confessing in great detail to the murders of 12 women throughout the state of Texas. Prosecutors in Michigan, however, were having no part of this bullshit deal and refused to accept it, keeping the cases against him there open. You go, Michigan. Don't take no shit. Shortly after beginning his 60-year sentence, there was a small technicality that almost put this monster back out on the streets. The Texas Court of Appeals ruled that he had not been informed that the water he attempted to drown one of his victims in was considered a, quote, deadly weapon. Due to this, he was reclassified as a non-violent felon. Bitch where? And as such, was eligible for early release. In a sense abolished Texas law, non-violent felons were eligible to have three days deducted from their sentences for every one day of time served with good behavior. And since Carl Watts was a model prisoner he was now eligible for parole as early as May 9th, 2006. Luckily, once again, Michigan said, Nah, bitch, and stepped in. In 2004, Michigan's Attorney General, Mike Cox, (coughs) I'm sorry, but Mike Cox? What is this, a Simpsons episode? Yeah, hello, is Mike there? Last name, Rutch. Hold on, I'll check. My crotch! My crotch! Hey, has anybody seen my crotch lately? <laughs> Anyways, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, Mike Cox... Mike Cox went on... My cock went on national TV. Oh, God. Mike Cox went on national TV asking anyone with any information that might connect Carl Watts to any of the number of unsolved murders in Michigan to come forward so they could seek a conviction and prevent this man, this madman from once again being let loose back into the world. And sure enough, someone indeed came forward. Joseph Foy from Westland, Michigan, reported seeing a man fitting Watts' description murder a 36-year-old woman named Helen Dutcher who had died in December of 1979 after being stabbed 12 times. 
Foy said that the thing he remembered the most about the man who committed the murder, which, I'm sorry, but if you saw this murder happen, why are you just now coming forward? Like, I I got questions for you, buddy. But anyways, so apparently the thing he remembered the most about this guy was his eyes. The eyes he described as, quote, evil and devoid of emotion, end quote. The eyes of Carl Eugene Watts. Watts was instantly charged with the murder and was extradited to Michigan, where his immunity deal in Texas meant jack shit. Just like throwing water on an oil fire, Mr. Watts. In fact, the trial judge allowed the confessions in the Texas murders to be allowed into evidence. After hearing Joseph Foy's testimony, a Michigan jury found Carl Watts guilty of the murder of Helen Dutcher on November 17, 2004, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment three weeks later on December 7th. In 2007, Watts would go on to be tried for and convicted of the murder of Gloria Steele, the Western magician, Western magician, the Western Michigan University student who had been stabbed to death in 1974. Jurors deliberated for less than a day before returning a guilty verdict, and Watts was once again sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole on September 13th. He was sent to a maximum security prison in Ionia, Michigan, but about a week later on September 21st, Carl Eugene Watts would die of prostate cancer in a Jackson, Michigan hospital. And personally, I think that ass cancer is a pretty fitting end for an asshole like Carl Watts. I just feel like it should have happened about ten times over before he actually finally died. Like, he just should have, like, constantly gotten ass cancer and then beat it and then got ass cancer and then beat it and then got ass cancer and then beat it and then got ass cancer and then beat it and then it killed him. You know? Like extend his suffering just a little bit before his death watts would claim that he had killed 40 women and at one point alluded to the fact that there may actually be as many as 80 victims watts would refuse to outright confess to any additional murders however as he didn't want to be considered a quote mass murderer yeah, about that, buddy. Um, 14 is still a lot. Like, a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. Like, damn, bro. Like, girl, calm down. Anywho. Police also still consider Carl Watts a suspect in as many as 90 unsolved homicides. This would bring his, this would bring his total body count to a whopping 104 and honestly 
That's too fucking many. Like, Jesus. Like, Jesus Crust. I want to start a pizza place called Jesus Crust, and it's all, like, religious-shaped pizzas, but it's, like, blasphemous. Blasphemously delicious. Welcome to Jesus Crust. How may I take your order? Well, that wraps up the top five murderers in Michigan. Once again, a huge shout out and thank you to the Michigan Murders and Music podcast. I will have them linked in the episode description. You can also find them on their website at www.michiganmurdersmusic.com. Uh, they have a lot of good merch on there. They, uh, they've got their episodes. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. So head on over to michiganmurdersmusic.com or listen anywhere you listen to podcasts. Or other than that, if you have any feedback on this episode or any other episode, or if you have any topics you would like me to cover, feel free to send an email to feedback at dabtodeath.com. Or you can always message me on any of the social medias. Uh, that's at dab to death. Unless you're on Instagram, then it's at dab to death podcast. Please rate and review. It would really mean a lot to me. And stay tuned Sunday for Burnin' Urban, where we talk about I Believe in Mary Bell, which is the urban legend of Bloody Mary. Stay tuned for what next week's Dab to Death episode is, because honestly, I haven't really thought that through, and uh, that's on me. But I will get you guys an episode next week, because I'm really trying to get back on a consistent posting schedule. You know, speaking of mental health and all of that, you know, it's just, it's kind of rough to... To, to find motivation to do things sometimes. But, you know, you, you, you just gotta, you gotta force yourself to do it. You gotta push yourself and drive yourself. And, uh, you know, honestly, like, I find a lot of joy in this. And so, like, that's what keeps me going. And that's what keeps me doing it. Coming up on 500 downloads. So that's a big milestone, honestly. I, I really appreciate all of you guys for listening, um, all my voo dudes and voo dolls and all my vooties in between. Until next time, be careful out there, everybody, because you never know when you might get dabbed to death. <laughs>